Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to John chapter 8. So we're back in our study going through the Gospel of John. I just heard, I just heard really good news from a friend of mine. Do you guys remember Justin? I was his youth pastor years ago. Now he's got six kids. That's crazy. I mean, he was in the youth group. This is when we lived in the Sierra Mountains. Um, he was my hunting buddy, fishing buddy, um, snowboard buddy. And he got in a motorcycle accident and uh, busted his spine and had to be, he was out down in the desert um, and had to be life flown to the hospital, never to walk again. I don't know how this works biologically, but he's able to have six kids. So, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he's got a, a lovely family. Um, and why was I bringing him up? Oh, um, he, he just said, uh, pray for me. Um, I, I have a friend that um, just received Christ. And uh, I was just so excited to hear that. And um, that's all I wanted to say. <laughs> It was, it was like leading up to be more dramatic than it really was. But, um, but that's the best thing you could hear, you know, that someone gets saved. Pray for us, the Pafford family. We're going to visit Adam, my wife's uh, mother, um, and then some other family and stuff. So we're, we're leaving on Monday and be back on Wednesday. So if you could pray for us just traveling and that... Um, I, my wife's dealing with her, her mom going through Alzheimer's and stuff, so just, just pray that we have a good visit. We don't know how many visits are left, you know, since that's just that kind of situation. So just uh, pray for us. All right, John chapter 8, if you would. Now, John chapter 7, we were there a couple weeks ago, and then I took a detour, but if you remember um, John chapter 7, I know... We'd spent some time in it, but really there's a division about Jesus. And um, wherever he goes, it seems to be if he shows up on the Sabbath, there's a showdown, right? <laughs> it's like uh, if you read, and it was the Sabbath, and then you see Jesus, you're like, uh-oh, something's going to go down, right? And he's the Lord of the Sabbath, Rest doesn't come from a day in a calendar. It comes from a relationship in Christ. And so he was trying to illustrate that, that he is our rest, uh, so we kind of transitioned out of John 7, the last verse of John 7. Of course, there weren't chapters and verses when the Bible was written. Uh, oh, I know why I was going to bring this up. Because the, the friend of my friend that just got saved was told to read the Gospel of John by someone that had a part in leading him to the Lord. That's why I was going to bring that up. And so here we are in the Gospel of John. Anyways, um, it's a good book to be in, especially if you're a new Christian or an old Christian. So Nicodemus then kind of, in John chapter 3, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Jesus teaches him about being born again. Nicodemus, he kind of came secretly. Now he, Nicodemus and John 7 is coming to Jesus, kind of identifying with him, or at least apologetically defending him, logically at least, and he reasons with him out of the law, uh, and you know, he's kind of standing up for Jesus, um, and then every, he kind of neutralizes the argument and the division, so everyone goes their way at the end of John chapter 7, John chapter 8 verse 1, then it says, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. I had the privilege of being there at one point, um, and the whole thing is just, it's overwhelming. Uh, but again, when you're, in the, when you're in the promised land, to me, it's not, about the, it's not about the place of the promised land, it's about the person of the promised land, to me. Because you could almost make the places and, and landmarks some sort of idolatrous thing. But it was, it was very cool to be there considering Jesus. He went away and he went up to the Mount of Olives. Verse 2, early in the morning. This is, you kind of see this with Jesus. He often sequesters himself and he communes with God the Father um, and he has that ongoing pinging relationship going back. 
Um, and so he, he kind of, he goes away earlier in the morning, he came into the temple, and then all the people came unto him, and he sat down and he started teaching them. This was the manner of the rabbis. They would sit down and people would gather around and the rabbi would teach. And so the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and they had set her in the midst. How humiliating is that? This raises so many questions to me. We're going we're to talk about this. But it just raises a lot of questions. This is before, obviously, um, smartphones with video cameras and you know, social media. She would have been blasted and you know, you know, publicly humiliated if they had that access. But here they are, you know, spying or inquiring. I don't know how they got the, I don't know how they were privy to the information, but however it happened, um, they found her and they thought, what a great opportunity. We can't get Jesus on the Sabbath. We can't get Jesus on a lot of different things, but we're going to put Jesus in this situation, depending on how he answers, it's a lose-lose situation. We've really got him now. They were out to get him. They were out to uh, a character assassinate and eventually crucify Jesus. And, and they said unto him, they said, okay, so picture the scene. A lot of people come. They're in, they're, in the, they're, they're in the shadow of the temple almost. You know, they're just in this, I don't want to say Mecca because that's a, a Muslim term. But this epicenter, this, it's like the Jewish epicenter. Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who said earlier, he said, hey, destroy this temple. In three days, I'll build it up again. He's trumping the actual building that they had so much um, connection to. Uh, he's, he's saying that he's the object. He's the light. He's the bread. Uh, he's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. He's the temple. He's the Sabbath. He's the Redeemer. He's the Lamb. Uh, he's the sacrifice. He's the Rabbi. He's God. And that's what they really got him for. They said, blasphemy, you being uh, a man, make yourself out to be God. Crucify him. So they, they set this woman down in the midst who is taken in the very act, which is, that's awkward. Remember, even... Even in the Old Covenant, if you were to see someone naked in the Old Covenant, uh, you know, that was, a, that was a serious offense. And so they are so zealous about trapping Jesus that they'll catch this woman naked in the very act. And the man, by the way. And this raises so many questions, but one of my questions is this. Where's the dude? Where's the dude? I mean, it takes two to tango, does it not? I mean, she's caught in adultery in the very act, but they're bringing the woman and publicly shaming her in front of... And just think about the dynamics here a little bit in the cultural aspect of things. If you're a woman, you're caught, you know, in some sort of crime, or she's in the position to where she's not married. Culturally speaking, this is before Me Too, this is before, like, you know, all the liberation and stuff like that, which I applaud. I think it's, it's uh, wonderful. But in that time, socioeconomically, you were really dependent on, on a husband-wife relationship. And if you were kicked out of the synagogue, most likely you lost your job, right? So you had to be pretty well connected. And for her to be in this kind of position, um, uh, you know, what kind of... What happened with, with her life? What did she get kicked out? Did she, was she raped? Did she lose her virginity and was not presentable to a husband? So she has to resort to methods like this? I mean, there's a lot of things that the Bible's not saying that I'm not saying that's what it's saying, but just put yourself in her position. Why is she the way that she is to where she feels her values degraded, or maybe the guy is a very influential man and he's cheating on his wife and he's usurping authority over her. We don't know. Either way, she is the one that's the target to get Jesus out of the ministry game 
But right now, she's the one that's being publicly humiliated. Now, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken adultery in the very act. Verse 4. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what say you? Moses commanded us. So they're referring to the law. They don't know who they're talking to. In the beginning, God created. Jesus is uncreated. He created man and woman. Do you not think Jesus knows about the law of Moses? For he gave the very words. He created Adam and Eve. I mean, he knows. And here they are trying to school Jesus on what the Bible says about adultery and the consequences of sin. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? Interesting pickle Jesus is in. Way back in Genesis, the Bible gives a prophecy about Jesus coming, but that the scepter would depart from uh, Judea, Israel. What that means is if you lose the scepter, you lose the civil authority to enact capital punishment. Remember, there was many times they tried to catch Jesus and they were, trying, they were going to take matters into their own hands. But how did Jesus end up really dying anyways? They had to defer to the civil government of the Romans because they had a form of capital punishment that was called the crucifixion, right? Not stoning, it was the crucifixion. And it had to be the crucifixion because Jesus knew that the prophecy about they pierced my hands and my feet and they'll look on him who they have pierced, he wasn't going to be stoned. He was going to be pierced. They knew, Jesus knew that. So even if, even if Jesus says, well, yeah, she committed adultery in the very act, let's pick up stones to stone her, I don't think they had the right to do it anyways because they were under the auspices of the Roman civil um, jurisprudence. They had to obey what the Roman, that's why they deferred to them when it came to crucifying Jesus because they could not do it themselves. And so Jesus is in this predicament. So if he says, yeah, pick up stones to stone him, now he's committing treason against the Romans, right? And if he says, no, let her go, then they're saying, oh, you're just, you know, um, you're just ignoring the law. So this is, this is kind of an interesting situation here. Let's continue on. This, they said, tempting him, you know, that's their motive, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger he wrote on the ground, as though he heard him not. Now, were the Bible silent, we should be silent. I don't know what he was writing on the ground. I'll just throw out what people have speculated Maybe he's writing the Ten Commandments. Maybe, I don't know. Could be. Maybe he's writing the names down of people. Rick. <laughs> Jennifer. <laughs> well, wow, I, got a lot, I need a lot of sand to write. Um, <laughs> maybe he's writing the, these guys from the oldest to the youngest. Maybe he's writing their names down and maybe what they did the day before or last week. Because, uh, see, they still don't know who they're dealing with. Jesus could walk into this room and know the hearts of everyone. Well, he's here. I mean, he knows your heart. I'm just saying, back in the day, before Jesus was crucified and entered into the hearts and lives of people, he could scan a room. <laughs> I don't know how Wi-Fi works, but he's the ultimate Wi-Fi. He's the Wi-Fi. He just, like, would know everyone's everyone's history all he knows he knows he knows so they don't know who they're talking to they don't know what they're saying so jesus is just he's doodling on the ground my personal opinion i think he's waiting remember jesus says the words that i say they're not mine but the father that give them to me the, the miracles that he do, he says, it's not mine, but the Father. He always deferred to the Father. And I think he's just having a Selah moment. He's just pausing. He's waiting for maybe some instruction from on high. And he's not even stressed or worried because he says, no man takes my life and no man, he knows this isn't his time anyways. You know how confident that you, he doesn't even have to set the record straight. He's just doodling in the ground. 
that he made. You know? <laughs> so, Jesus is acting... <laughs> I don't think it's rude, but, I mean, they don't know who they're talking to, and they're trying to school him on the law. They're trying to uh, trip him up and accuse him, and he's not, he's not really ignoring them because they're there and everyone's sitting around staring at this whole situation. But it's kind of awkward, with that awkward silence, you know what I mean? Like, if I just stopped right now and I knelt down, and you're like, what's Neil doing? And I'm just, I take out my pen and... I mean, you'd kind of wonder what's going on. Especially when the rabbi, the master, and they're all deferring to him. He's up, and think about it, Jesus didn't go to rabbinical school and everyone's approaching him as though he had graduated with honors except the people that did all the hard work and they're like, who's this Johnny come lately? This new kid off the block. That was a new kid on the block. Um, So, verse 7. So, when they continued asking him, they kept on the issue. When they continued asking him, because he's he's sitting, writing in the sand. We don't know what he's writing. So, they're pressing, they're pressing, they're pressing. He lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. Remember, Jesus knows all hearts, he knows your history, he knows what you're thinking. He, they might have even been sinning in their hearts as they're doing this. Maybe they have wrath or jealousy or covetousness or maybe they had lust in their hearts. And Jesus, he knew it. He already taught if a man looks upon a woman uh, with lust in his heart, he's already committed adultery in his heart. He's basically saying if you could have got away with it, you would have. But just because you didn't do the act, it doesn't mean you're innocent. So he knows. These guys aren't pulling one over on Jesus. So he says, okay, if you're sinless and guiltless and innocent, then, you, then I guess you've got the green light to stone this woman, even though the, you need to defer to the Romans. So why don't you do it? That's a good way to come back at this situation, right? If you're so sure of yourself and you're so innocent in the matter then why don't you take matters into your own hands and do it? Very good. That's a very good reply. Now, it's almost like Jesus is playing tennis with one hand and foot tied behind his back. And the ball's in their court. And he stooped down, verse 8, as if (laughs) rubbing them the wrong way. And again he stooped down and he started writing in the ground again. What is going on, Jesus? Verse 9, and they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience. This is kind of commendable. At least they're honest. At least they're honest. I mean, they were trying to, they were, I don't know about how they went around catching this woman and where the guy's at, but when it came to the issue of their own personal responsibility for them falling short and them have messed up and they're, they come from the same lump of clay, they're sinners too. They're like, he's right. And they went out one by one, beginning at the eldest. Now, if we were to do this at this church, who would we start with? I'm kidding. <laughs> so beginning at the eldest, meaning they, were the, they had lived enough life, and they're like, yeah. If you are 30, and let's say you commit three sins a day, that's about, what, um, a thousand sins a year, right? Let's round it off. It's probably very conservative it's fiscally that's so red right <laughs> you're 30 you've got 30,000 sins under your belt you're 50 you've got 50,000 sins you're 70 70,000 sins you're 80 80,000 sins right that's just if you th- sin three times a day how many of you break that record right <laughs> your average is a little bit higher um, so of course, they're like, yeah, he's right. Yep, none of us are, are innocent in this matter. And they started, they were throwing down their stones. They went out from the eldest, even unto the last. Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. I love that phrase. It just really caught me this time around. Jesus and the woman 
are alone. And when Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, I want you to picture yourself as a sinner, you and Jesus alone, and he comes to you in a position and from a, from a place of I don't condemn you, no condemnation. I didn't come here to throw a stone. I came here to love you. I came here to to have a relationship with you. I didn't come for an ulterior motive. He's not coming to extract something from this woman. He doesn't want anything physically from her, financially from her. Uh, He doesn't want anything from her. Jesus comes for what he can give to people, not what he could get from them. He doesn't need anything. He's God. I think I lost my volume, Michael. Um, So... When Jesus lifted up himself, he saw no one but the woman. He said unto her, Woman, where are those your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I want you to really... We're going to bookend this because I'm going to tell you my main point now and then we're just going to do a whole bunch of other things and then I'll come back to this main point. If the church would take this approach with people, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. We'll say if you stop sinning, then I won't condemn you. We reverse the order. We make it conditional. If your performance and behavior is up to the way that I think it should be, then I won't condemn you. But until then, you're condemned. Right? And Jesus starts with the word no condemnation. And then he says, but go and sin no more. Why would he say go and sin no more? Because he hates what sin is going to do to her. It's going to kill her relationships. It's going to kill her reputation. It could, like, it could harm you, you physically, mentally, uh, emotionally, mentally, emotionally. Uh, kind of the same. Um, so that's why he doesn't want her to do it. Life is about choices. Choices have consequences. He wants her to make good choices because he wants her to live her best life in Christ, knowing Christ. So let's pray. Um, did I already pray? I felt like I already prayed. I'm going to do it again. Lord, I just pray that you would just, uh, just honor your word as I know you would. It, it doesn't return back void. I pray that the Holy Spirit would be uh, not only the teaching, but the teacher today. And that we would understand your heart towards sinners and people. We've all fallen short, yet you do not want to condemn us. You want to carry us. You want to have a relationship with us in spite of us. With all of our ugliness and fallenness, you still love us that much. Thank you. May that compel us uh, to live a life that glorifies you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at verse 5, if you would go back. So they're quoting Moses. They're quoting the Old Covenant. You know, the first five books of the Old Testament are considered the law, the Pentateuch. And they're quoting the Pentateuch. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say, Jesus? So Leviticus, if you look up on the screen here, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10 says this. And the man that commits adultery with another man's wife, even he that commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and adulteress shall surely be put to death. Boom. Not misquoting it. They're just leaving half of the equation out. Where's the dude? Right? Where's the dude? I mean, if you're going to keep the law, don't tweak it so it fits your paradigm and it makes your point, you know, we don't know this, the, the, the sordid history of this woman. Maybe she's an easy target because she's been a victim of maybe sexual assault uh, in her, during her life. We don't know. But we know that the man's not there. She's being humiliated. He's not. Where's, the, where's Harvey Weinstein? He needs to be in the middle of this thing. Right? I mean... Yeah, they're both guilty, um, but I don't know where he is. And the Bible says, if there's an act of adultery, both people should be stoned. Look at Deuteronomy 22. 
If a man be found lying with a woman married to a husband, then they shall both of them die. But the man that lay with the woman and the woman, so shalt thou put away evil from Israel. So there you have it, both the man and the woman. So the penalty was death, right? So what's the difference between adultery and fornication? Fornication uh, would be you're not married and you're having sex outside of marriage. Adultery is you're married or someone else is married. Someone that's married is having sex with someone else that's married. So that's breaking the confines of marriage. That's adultery. Fornication is sex outside of marriage. It'd be like young people, you know, sleeping around, um, seeing if the shoe foots type of thing. And God had never intended for that union between man and woman to be done outside of the confines of marriage. This is what gets all messy. And it does. It really it just it affects, it affects you emotionally. Um, there's a lot of stuff that comes from going outside of God's design, which is one man and one woman, and enjoy sex together. I mean, it wouldn't be tempting if it wasn't something pleasurable that God made. He gave a whole book to it, the Song of Solomon, the original PG-13 book. I mean, you, if you were a Jewish kid, you couldn't read that book until you were 13. Um, so God's not against sex. He just puts it into the boundaries uh, of marriage. Now, David, King David, if you'll I think it's on the screen, but uh, Psalm 51, is that, did I put that one on the screen or did I? Okay, this is not all of his prayer, but remember, David commits adultery. With who? Memory saw her bathing, and um, so he, as the king, he just, what a messy situation that was, you know, he, Gets the husband killed, gets, gets the woman. I mean, he's, he's committing. It's like when you watch those thriller-type movies, you're like, no, don't do that. No, no. It's like you dig the hole deeper and deeper and deeper. And um, so David, some say this is a year after the fact. And remember, the prophet came to him and said, thou art the man. So he's, he's like dug a, himself a big hole and he's coming to this acknowledgement. Have mercy upon me, O God, uh, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you might be justified when you speak and be clear when you judge. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. That doesn't mean that his mom and dad were, uh, did something sinful. He's just saying he was born a sinner. That's what that verse teaches. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and the hidden part you shall make known wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. If you go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 17, um, in there are some descriptions of how a king should act. One of them is he needs to handwrite the copy of the Old Testament. He needs to read it daily. Um, uh, he cannot multiply to himself wives and he cannot multiply gold and he cannot multiply horses. So that was a condition. God said, okay, you want to have a king? I'm give you these conditions. His dad didn't do it. David didn't do it. And all the other kings probably didn't do it. I mean, they were, they were so messed up. And yet God uses messed up people. David is a guy after God's own heart, right? Here's this guy that's just writing the Psalms. He's just jamming for Jesus, going his like harp out in the woods, you know? He's, he loves the Lord, yet he struggled with lust, committed adultery. Now, in the Old Covenant... David would have known this if he had read the Old Covenant. What is the only way he's going to get his sins forgiven of adultery? Look at the next verse, I think. Is it the hyssop thing? Okay, first look at this hyssop. The hyssop is a bushy plant that the priests would use. You would take the animal sacrifice. You would tie it on the altar, the four corners. You would slit its throat. You would catch the blood in the basin. You would take 
you, the high priest would atone for his own sin because in order to go into the Holy of Holies, he needed to have his sins atoned. But he'd take the hyssop, put it in the bowl, and then sp- sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. Weird, first of all. <laughs> Weird. I don't want to know how my sausage is made. I just want to eat my sausage, right? I don't want to know how my sins are like uh, taken care of in the old covenant. That's what I'm taking care of. But you know what David is doing? Go, go to this next slide, Michael. So this is the new covenant, and he's referring back to the old covenant. He said, almost all things by the law are purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood is no remission. You know what David is? Okay, so David should have died. David should have died according to the law of the old covenant, but David didn't die. Interesting, right? So is this like a double standard here? Like the Pharisees caught this woman. She needs to die. Your own great King David did things worse, and he, because he he's the king and gets to kind of like, what is he, above the law? He's not above the law. His sin did catch up with him. He got convicted. He has this genuine like confession of repentance. Psalm 51 is, you know, a great, like, honest, yeah, I'm the one, I'm guilty. But here's the issue. The reason why he includes hyssop in his prayer is because he knows that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So you know what he's saying? He's like, God, take the hyssop, metaphorically speaking, and give it to me now. This is interesting. This is almost like a prayer like a Christian would pray. I was having this discussion the other day with someone, um, and it was about rabbis. And we were having, they were asking how I would witness to a rabbi, and I'd say, okay, so a rabbi that doesn't live in the time zone of Israel, let's say like lives in L.A. or wherever, New York, or wherever they are, uh, there are synagogues all over, um, a good question to politely ask is, how do you have your sins forgiven? Since there's no temple, since there's no sacrifice, there's no hyssop, there's no priesthood, uh, there, you, how do you guys do it for the last 2,000 years? Just, and I had one rabbi tell me, he's like, well, we, we just believe that God will apply it to our hearts even though there's no blood that's shed. And I was like, interesting. You're this close to being a Christian. Because <laughs> we believe Jesus died 2,000 years ago and his shed blood once and for all, good enough for all, we apply it to our heart and it's not something that we repeat over and over and over again because the cross was good enough. We don't put a comma at the cross. We put a big, giant explanation point. So David should have died. I got to move here. Jesus answers and responds to them on God's terms. Verse 6 of John 8. And they said, tempting him, that they might accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger he wrote on the ground as though he heard him not. And did you know that when Jesus rose from the dead, he... He was sharing with the disciples and those two on the road to Emmaus. He opened up the Psalms, the law, and the prophets. He said, all these things were written concerning me. And have you ever read through the Psalms and you're like, is David going first person, third person? Who's he talking about? Do you realize there's over 300 prophecies concerning Christ in the Old Testament? And some of them you might fly by and just be thinking, oh, that's interesting. And others, are, you know, like in Psalm 22, where I just mentioned it earlier, Psalm 22 is like they looked... Uh, or they pierced my hands and my feet. That Psalm 22, incidentally, is really kind of a picture of Jesus on the cross, the behind the scenes uh, the BTS thing going on there. But check this Psalm out. They also that seek after my life lay snares for me. Um, and they that seek my hurt speak, speak mischievous things and imagine deceits all day long. But I, as a deaf man, heard not, and I, as a dumb man, that opened not his mouth. Thus, I was a man that hears not, and whose mouth is no reproofs. Now, Jesus, oftentimes, like when he's being, he's being falsely accused, his character is being assassinated, they're saying things, they're lying about him, they're plotting against him, they're, they're coming at him with all different angles, and his reputation, it seems to be in jeopardy, yet Jesus doesn't jump to his defense. Now, if, you got, if someone blasted you on social media or 
you know, uh, someone said something about you at work or, or whatever. I don't know about you, but I think a lot of times we're quick to defend our name and our reputation and our honor, and we feel justified to set the record straight, do we not? It's because we're a little bit insecure as about, well, what will people really think? Because I know this is inaccurate. That's not, they're not portraying me correctly. And so we want to set the record straight. Jesus never does that. You want to know why? He knows who he is. He's secure in who he is. He's so secure, he gets all of his worth and value from his relationship with the Father. And when you are so settled with your relationship with God and people call you names or they lie about you, you don't have to set the record straight. You don't. Jesus didn't. Um, you know, it says when he was reviled, he reviled not again. It says that there was no guile found in his mouth. There was no deceit found in his mouth. Um, for me, it would be sarcasm. <laughs> That's my default. I would just go to that. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. I can't compete with my wife. She's way quicker than me, but I'm like the turtle, though. I'm slow, but I'll, I'll win in the end, uh, maybe. I doubt it. Um, but Jesus didn't feel the need to do that. So he makes this statement in, in uh, or John 8, 7. He that's without sin, let him cast the first stone. And the truth of the matter is, is that we've all sinned and deserve God's judgment. You know the verses. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. All the, all the passages in Romans, like Romans 3, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But if, we're, if they were honest and we were honest, we would have to agree with them and the Bible that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God and we all should share the same fate as that woman. Now let me illustrate it this way. Grace is getting what we do not deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. We deserve hell and we got heaven. We deserve death and instead we got life. Let me illustrate it this way. You're going down Valley View. My wife would say, people that speed, she's like, they probably have diarrhea. Let it, just let it go, Neil. They're in a hurry. So you're having some bowel issues. You're going 90 miles down Valley View. <laughs> you're trying to get home, and you get pulled over by a cop. Worst case scenario, right? Cop comes up. Roll down the window, license and registration. He's like, you know how fast you're going? You said, yeah, at 90 uh, I'm sorry, and he's like, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a warning. What? So the warning is mercy. He's, the, the warning is mercy. You should get the ticket and probably reckless endangerment and maybe your license suspended. I mean, 90 is super fast on Valley View. Um, so you should have got the ticket. Instead, you didn't. And then what if he says, he goes back to his car and he comes back, knocks on your window, he pulls out his wallet and he's like, here, here's 20 bucks. Go have lunch on me. That's grace. You see the difference between mercy and grace? So mercy is you're supposed to get something and you don't. Grace is you're not supposed to get something and you do. And so he gives you, he lets you go and he gives you 20 bucks. Look, look at what uh, Max Lucado said about mercy and grace. The difference between mercy and grace, mercy gave the prodigal son a second chance. Grace gave him a feast. <laughs> a feast. But the Pharisees were so preoccupied with judging people. I mean, they really wanted to trip Jesus up, but they, were, they had a reputation of being hypocrites and judging people, right? And so the problem with all of us also is that when we judge others, we put ourselves in a position of innocence as though we are the guiltless, self-righteous ones. Just put yourself on a scale. It's called scaling and counseling, you know, the scale of one to 10. It's often used, the scale of one to 10. You do one to 100, whatever you want to do. Um, 
how righteous do the Pharisees think they are versus how other people that aren't the Pharisees are? They, obviously, they're not scaling themselves at a 10 out of 10. They're perfect because they all threw their stones down. But in their thinking, they're probably right up there and the others are lower. And look, does God grade on a scale? You're either righteous or you're not. You're either holy or you're not. You either have the life of Christ or you don't. And so there's no sliding scale. There's no nice try people in heaven. You're, you either have Christ and you have life or you do not have Christ and you do not have life. Yet they were using some religious scale because they don't do certain things and they do do certain things and they don't do this, but um, I, I do and I don't do this, but they do. And so they probably had their scale like, yeah, of course, we could be the ones to judge because, you know, we're, we're a little bit higher up on the scaling than they are. Look at Matthew 7. Jesus has a lot to say about this. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye and do not notice the log, right, the Louisville slugger that's in your own eye? Or how could you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you'll be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So just a kind reminder from Jesus. And then in verse 9 and 10, if you'll go back to uh, John 8. And when they heard this, he said, you know, he that's without sin, let him cast the first stone. And he stooped down again. And verse 9, and they which heard it being convinced of their own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And Jesus, when he lifted himself up, he saw no one but the woman. And it reminded me of the Mount, the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember Jesus takes um, uh, Peter, James, and John up to the mountain. Jesus turns the light on because he shows them he's the light. Remember, Moses appears, Elijah appears, so you got the law, you got the prophets, the whole representation of the Old Covenant. And there's Jesus, Moses, Elijah. They wanted to make them all the same. We know the, their theological issue there. They all worship Jesus. And then when they all look up and they're in this like state of awesomeness, because here's, here's two Old Testament, you know, um, heroes of the faith, and there's Jesus. They're still trying to figure him out. Uh, and so they look up, and there's Jesus only. There's no Moses. There's no Elijah. No law. No prophets. Jesus only. And so it's like this woman was in the midst of all these people that are representing Moses, and Jesus went, he stooped down again, and it's almost kind of the same type of situation where they all left and then no Moses, just Jesus and the woman. Just Jesus and the woman. And I love that because my thought is this. We may feel lonely, but we're never alone. We are never alone. Not in the new covenant, at least. You might feel lonely, but you're never alone. So as we do life, the good, the bad, the ugly, we do it all with Jesus. We do it all in Jesus. Because now in the new covenant, when we sin, we do it in the presence of the Lord himself. So knowing who Jesus is and where Jesus is makes all the difference. And that's why I wanted to bring this passage up, because we're in the new covenant. Jesus isn't outside the building. He's not you know, in Jerusalem or in heaven. He's in all places, but he's in all people that have received him by grace through faith. So where Jesus is to you is, makes all the difference. To make this illustration, Paul's going to use sexual sin, fornication in this case. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And he wants to teach the Corinthians about the locality of Jesus so that you might think about doing these things a little differently when you know who Jesus is and where Jesus is. So he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. That's a really great thought. He's like, you know what, I could, I, he, could do, he could eat all the food, but he's like, it might not be beneficial for other people, they might stumble. So he's like, it's all lawful for me, but not all things edify. All things are lawful 
for me, but I will not be brought under the power, the control, or dominated by anything. This is a great thing for substance abuse or people that struggle with addictions. He's like, I don't want to be controlled by it. Right? It might be, like some people, um, well, I had to go to an AA class uh, for a school project, and um, they, uh, total abstinence, right? Like, I haven't, you know, it's been like 10 years and three months and this and that. Um, so for them, they're like not, you know, but other people, they say like, it's lawful for me, but I don't want to be controlled by it. Other people are like, I don't want to be, con- I know if I do it, I'll be controlled by it. So I'm not going to do it. They're free to do it and they're free not to. And so Paul's saying, I'm, I'm making the choice that I don't want to be a stumbling block to anyone. So a lot of times he just said, I won't do it at all. And then he makes this illustration. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And he's not teaching digestional class here. <laughs> he's just saying your, your food has a purpose and your, your digestive, your stomach has a purpose. And God will get rid of both, both of them. They're both irrelevant because it's just to keep you alive, right? We don't live for food, you know. Just food helps us to live. But your stomach has a purpose. Food has a purpose. And so he's using that to say the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. So your body has a purpose, just as your stomach has a purpose. Your body has a purpose, and your body's purpose is not for adultery or fornication. And he said, and God raised the Lord up and raised us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So he, now he's teaching where Jesus is. So I then t- sh- shall I then take the members of Christ to make them a members of a prostitute? Never, God forbid. Or do you not know that he that's joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two uh, will become one flesh. Even though there's a, like a, a monetary exchange, there, there's, there's physical and emotional exchanges going on too. And he's trying to teach them that. I've been to Corinth. I've seen the temple, the, the prostitute that's still there up on the mountain um, where all the prostitutes would, and they would come down to, to Corinth and, you know, in their culture, it was like, eh, no big deal. It's like when I lived in Amsterdam, um, I would go to church in the red light district. And this is, I know California is legal marijuana, but back in the day, man, Amsterdam was the bee's knees. If you were like, you know, some hippie wanting to smoke out, and so everyone would go to Amsterdam. And one of the things of Amsterdam was the marijuana and the prostitution. Roxanne, you don't have to turn on the red light. If the red light was on, it means the prostitute was out of commission. That's what that song means, by the way. Anyways, I would go to church, and these are where the buildings are like three stories tall, and there's no space in between them, but they're all different color bricks. So my church here, they call them a coffee shop, but it was where you smoked marijuana. And they do it outside. And then over here was, this is in the red light district, so they're everywhere. Um, prostitution house, the ladies in lingerie in the window. And we would we'd go to church. And so in their culture, it was like they lived in the red light district. And what Paul's trying to say is, let me help you understand the red light district. If you sleep with a prostitute, even though it might be normal to you because you're maybe desensitized to it, he's like, if you do that, you're taking Jesus and joining him to that situation. That's why he says in verse 17, but he that's joined to the Lord or she that's joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with the Lord. You can't get any closer to Jesus than what verse 17 says. Therefore, he says, flee from sexual immorality and every other sin that a person commits is outside the body, but sexual, the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And then he asks this rhetorical question, or do you not know? Because obviously you're living in such a way that this doesn't seem like it's a reality to you. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who's within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own, you were bought with the price. So then, glorify God in your body. And then, lastly, I'm just going to kind of cut and paste as I finish up here. If you'll turn to verse John 8 again, and we'll, we'll finish up with this thought. Verse 10. 
And when Jesus had lifted himself up and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are your accusers? Has no man condemned you? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Well, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So the whole purpose and ministry of Jesus was to bring life, not death and condemnation. Look at John 17. After everyone's favorite verse, John 3.16, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that in order that the world might be saved through him. Whosoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but who uh, does not believe in Jesus is condemned already because they do not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So what's the thing that condemns you? Unbelief, right? That's the only thing that, it's the only unpardonable sin is the sin of unbelief. It's the only thing that could condemn you. Because Jesus became sin for us who knew no sin, he took God's wrath, punishment, judgment, and condemnation. Therefore, there's none of that left over for us. There's no more wrath. There's no more punishment. There's no more condemnation. Will God, will he discipline you? Yeah, he'll do it in love. But he's not going to condemn you. That's what Jesus took upon himself. And I want to illustrate it leading up to that thought. And this is the ending thoughts, of course. Um, but remember Romans 7, where Paul's having this huge struggle about living under the law. Um, and he was the Jew of Jews, the Pharisee of Pharisees, and he himself struggled under the sin, uh, uh, under the law. The good that he wanted to do, he failed. The bad that he didn't want to do, he ended up doing it anyways. And then Paul ends up this whole, you know, Jekyll and Hyde back and forth thing that he goes through that he puts down very openly and honestly, by the way. I really appreciate that. Um, and then he ends this, like, uh, dilemma, this dichotomy that he's, he's wrestling with, you know, the good dog and the bad dog. And he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? So his question is not what, but who. And then he says, I thank, I thank God that it's Jesus Christ. Then he goes to Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. And this is kind of the key verse for our, our lesson today. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are, what's the next word? In Christ Jesus. That little preposition, that little tiny preposition two little strokes of a pen or a keyboard that little word if you're not in Jesus what do you think what do you think that verse would mean so if you are in Jesus what's what what's the benny what's the benefit no condemnation really how do i get in Jesus simple Jesus i'm a sinner come into my heart save me Boom, right? Because Jesus became sin for us who knew no sin. He took God's wrath, punishment, and judgment, and condemnation, so there's none left over. Notice where and who we need to be in to not have condemnation. It's in, 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 in. So accepting Christ is more than our get-out-of-jail-free card. He not only took our condemnation, he also gave us the free gift of eternal life. Look at John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say unto you, he that hears my words and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life and shall not come unto condemnation, but is passed from death into life, unto life. And that life, of course, is Jesus. The last verse that I want to look at is where the last phrase of the, of the last verse is in verse 11 of John 8, where Jesus says, okay, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. So just because we are no longer ever going to face condemnation, Jesus kindly still tells the woman, but go and sin, and sin no more. Why? Because if she does, she will be condemned by God. No, he, no. But Jesus knows that sin wrecks our lives and brings death to our relationships and our joy and our happiness and our bodies and our mental well-being. Look at this quote. God hates our sin, not for what it does to him, but for what it does to us. Would you own that statement? God hates our sin, not for what it does to him. 
Look, God hates sin, of course, obviously, but he's not intimidated by it to the point that he went to the cross, he conquered sin. He looked sin square in the eye. The stinger of death snapped over his knee, conquered it. He has the keys to death and hell and sin. He conquered it. So he's not like, it's not like he's like, oh no, that's the worst thing ever. He's seen it all. He knows it all. He paid for it all. And I'm not going light on it. All I'm just trying to say is look at sin from God's perspective. He hates it for what it does to you. The reason why he hates it because he knows sin uh, it, it destroys lives. He, that's why he hates it. I would never hate my kids for doing bad. I would hate what bad does to my kids. Do you hear what I'm saying? I would never hate my kids for doing bad, but I would totally hate what bad could do to my kids. That's kind of what I'm saying. Even when Adam and Eve sinned, they covered their sin, they walked away from God, they hid themselves, God still pursued after them even when they weren't pursuing after God. That's the way he looks at sin and sinners. They, they tried to cover it up with the fig leaves, right? First Baptist Church, the fig leaf. <laughs> they tried to do it on their own. Um, and God says, that's not gonna work. I love you. Let me provide you know, a covering for your sin. And so it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Remember the prodigal son? It wasn't the critical, cynical, hot-tempered, anger, disappointed, never could measure up to my dad. I want to go back to that. The prodigal son, it was the goodness of his father that led him back. And so when we, when we know how good God is and how loving he is, does that make you want to sin more or sin less? It's like when Homer was, you know, bought off the prostitution market the second time, right? Hosea loved her anyways, and she was so smitten by that love that he didn't have to put any, like, shackles or, like, you don't go from here, woman, and go back to Hoenn. <laughs> um, he didn't have to do that. He just showed that he loved her, and that love constrained her. She didn't need rules. She was conquered by love. Now, it's the love of Christ, the Bible says, that constrains us and it compels us to turn from sin and to turn to God. Now, in conclusion here, remember I said I started with the way Jesus started and I was going to do a whole bunch of other stuff and then I was going to end where my main point was. What if we just on purpose, look, are there going to be people that get pregnant? Yeah. Out of wedlock, I mean. Yeah. Are there going to be like uh, immoral issues that come up? Yeah. Are people going to be arrested? Yeah. Are people going to just have life happen to them and make bad choices and they'll, ha they'll have bad consequences? Yeah. 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 Should we start the way Jesus started? Look, I don't condemn you. Look, if Jesus came to us... You that are ready to throw out condemnation, are you without sin? Wait, how did Jesus forgive you? How did you receive God's grace? Because you cleaned your life up and you learned some Bible verses and you were way too cool for Sunday school and so God just so lucky to have us, right? God found us sinners, fallen short, dead, in need of his life, and we just said, God, come into my heart and, and save me, and he did by his grace, I just launched a spit right in my glass. That's like blurring my... So the concluding thoughts that I have for us is this. Have you received God's gift of mercy and grace? I know it's all up there. You probably read it to the end. Do you still walk around with a sense of condemnation? Or do you walk around condemning others because you feel like you're scaling and you're at a nine and they're at a, you know, a five? Do we treat others the way God treats us? Like, how did he find you when you got saved? How, how, how did he find you? Because sometimes we get spiritual amnesia, you know, like we've always been a Christian for some reason. <laughs> or do we see ourselves sitting in the seat of Moses, judging people and showing no mercy? You know, the Bible says that you'll be treated the way you treat others. 
And I think it's a cool way to approach relationships, treating others the way God treats us. Here's the, here's the problem with that. If you have a view of God that's condemning and critical, you'll treat others that way. But if you have a biblical view of God, he loves you, he doesn't want you to sin and wreck your life, so he'll come to you out of love and just say, look, I love you too much to let you continue to do that, then maybe we'll treat others the way God treats us. And does the promise of no condemnation lead us to sin more or to sin less? Because I could, I, could I could hear the Pharisees saying, if you teach that, Jesus, you're going you know, to give them a license to sin. And I think Jesus, he had this woman's best interest in mind because he didn't come to condemn. He came to give life, right? Let's stand and be dismissed in a word of prayer. And before we, were, before we are dismissed, we're going to have a song. But before we have the song, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, if there's anyone here that's never received you, I pray that uh, maybe they've been in church their whole life. I don't know. Maybe, um, maybe something was said that just kind of maybe uh, convicted their hearts. And they, uh, they're dropping the stone and they're saying, I'm a sinner. I want to receive you. Maybe, maybe there's Christians in here that are very condemning. Maybe there's Christians in here, probably most likely, that are really condemning of themselves. They're, they're their own worst critic and they can't get out of their heads. And they always hear the accuser of the brethren that they're not good enough, they don't measure up, they deserve God's wrath and judgment and maybe they walk around feeling condemned. Lord, I just pray you'd lift that burden off them and show them uh, your heart and love for them. And Lord, may we learn to treat others the way you are treating us. And I thank you for this church and the opportunity to uh, just labor and be amongst uh, uh, just my fellow brothers and sisters. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.